I may be one of them sometimes that um, it evokes a time where I want to go out and get a coffee rather than listen to the person actually doing a Bible study on a survey. Okay? And I've got to, I've got to say to you, by the way, right off, um, if I'm a little jumbled today, it's because Joycelyn had the spa station on on satellite radio. The what station? The spa station. So I'm in the age of Aquarius right now, rather than anywhere else where I should be in my mind and thought. Finally had to have her turn it off before actually I got here so my mind could be in its right place. So, um, on the other hand, surveys are great for this one perspective in particular, and that is to give us a holistic view of individual books within the Bible that sometimes we micromanage chapters and verses and take them out of their context as the book as a whole, and also in relationship to redemptive history as a whole. That's very important when you start to actually get your theology down pat and your bibliology down pat. And you end up now starting to think in broader themes in terms of God's redemptive history using mankind to do it, or the generations of men. So we begin with Exodus. It's a two-week study. Um, Following this, there'll be one-week studies in the additional books of the Old Testament. Exodus, though, is critical, just as Genesis is. Exodus covers the time frame for one year when the tabernacle was set up. That's the ending of the book. It begins with Moses uh, and uh, the children of Israel, the life of Moses, the timing of that life, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, or 40 years in Midian, 40 years in the wilderness, a time of testing which we'll learn later on, which 40 years, numerology-wise, represents. Where Genesis ends, Exodus begins, but in a generational sense. Jacob's sons would flourish in Egypt after Joseph's death. Exodus 1.5 tells us that the number of Jacob's sons and their families were at the time in Egypt when Joseph was alive as 70 people. And now they number up to two million. When Joseph was alive, or Jacob? Jacob. Did I say Joseph? Yeah, I mean there was seventy that went down to Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. Under well, that's what that's what the text is is relaying in terms of that period of time. So, in other words, the increase of the number is significant in relationship. By the time they leave after the tenth plague, they leave Egypt for the promised land. So in Genesis 48, God promised Jacob this, I will make you numerous and fruitful. I will make you a company of peoples and I will give you this land, Canaan, for an everlasting possession. What verse is that, brother? 48.4. So that has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? What does that promise sound like? Mm, Very similar. There is a, you could say, a golden thread going through Genesis that goes into Exodus in in terms of this promise given to Abraham of a literal seed, a physical seed, that would be the children of Israel, 
But then part of that golden thread has a spiritual promise to it. That is, through the loins of Abraham will also come a spiritual seed. And that is you and I right now. The spiritual seed, there's a what is called, if you ever want to read a great book, The Four Seeds of Abraham. It explains this in depth much more, much better than I'm doing right now. But there is a spiritual natural seed. That spiritual natural seed is from the loins of Abraham, who are Hebrews, who are saved. You and I are spiritual unnatural seed. We are grafted in through the loins of Abraham, you could say, spiritually. So you can't separate Genesis and Exodus because of the Abrahamic covenant specifically. But we know even before Abraham in Genesis that God was working redemptively. And Pat made that known. Therefore, the reader must understand that Exodus points to a couple things. Israel is not only going to experience an exodus from Egypt after 400 years in bondage and slavery, and they will be delivered by God's mighty hand and prophet who acts as a mediator between God and man. That's Moses. But Israel is also headed back to Canaan, where God gave Jacob his blessing and his promise. Secondly, the reader must recognize that God is fulfilling his redemptive plan through the generations of men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you will find that as a common phrase even in your New Testament. It becomes very, very important during Jesus' ministry. God has done this through choosing particular men to receive God's redemptive blessings of future rest that will coincide with I'm going to turn my page here, with a type of physical and spiritual rest in Canaan and a physical resurrection and spiritual rest in heaven. Now, in Adam, all men were dead or died in Adam. And in Christ, all men are made alive. Now, of course, in that text in Romans, the all for Adam is not the same equivalent to the all that is in Christ. The all in Adam are all men, all women, all children who are born in sin through Adam's, you could say, loins, spiritually dead. But in Christ, all are made alive, but only after the spiritual seed that God sows within this earth through men whom God has chosen to bring forth the promise of salvation that ends up through his chosen seed, singular Christ. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, Paul says. So God is fulfilling his redemptive plan here. So in one sense, you read a book that is historical narrative, just like Genesis. We read it, we're immersed in the culture, we're immersed in the, you could say, the language of the culture of the day. We're immersed, as Pat tried to bring up many, many times, 
This is a Hebrew culture immersed, being saved by God individually while being surrounded, and this will be Israel's experience as a nation, by the world. Mm -hmm. By nations in no way have ever been intended by God to save. Now that causes great consternation in the liberal church, doesn't it? Are you telling me that all men aren't saved? Or all of man? Are you telling me that God would pass over certain people and then only select certain people to save? And the answer from the Bible is yes. Absolutely. And even while death was reigning from Adam to Moses, God had his plan to redeem Israel. And that's the part we're going to be immersed in in the book of Exodus. But also we're immersed in the spiritual meaning and the spiritual lessons that come from God's redemptive work from Genesis, from Adam to Moses, where men couldn't save themselves. That's the whole point. Man cannot save himself. We see that, I think it's in Genesis 6, when the thoughts of man were only wicked continually, and God sends the flood. And he says, I and I alone do send the waters upon life where the breath of life of man is. I, I, I and I alone, and let's, let's be serious here. Ooh, I didn't, sorry about that. Let's see if, it, if, it's, if the clock is ticking on it, then it's recorded. Yes, it is. So when God says that, let's get down to what causes the offense within the majority of the world. This God of Israel, this God of the Old Testament, in no way could represent the loving God that I believe in. Because when he sent the flood of waters upon this earth, he killed every man, every woman, and every child. Right? This God is a consuming fire. Right? Right? And it's even worse than that because you read up into uh, well, when Israel went into the new land God commanded them to go into several cities and just wipe everything right out. That's right. Children. Well, not one is supposed to be left and they left some, didn't they? Oh yeah, well, unfortunately they did. That's right. Bag, but, uh, that's right. Uh, that's a little difficult to read sometimes because you realize what they were really yeah. just wiping everybody out. Men, women, and children. Jesus said... <coughs> In the book of John, he says, does this offend you too, to his own disciples? There are parts of the Bible that this holy God that is revealed, which, by the way, by the way, will be revealed in the book of Exodus in relationship to Mount Sinai, as they are heading towards Mount Sinai to receive the law. <coughs> we see a powerful God who basically said, do not dare touch the base of the mountain. Even your animals, they surely will die. So you cannot have grace without wrath, right? You cannot have it. The question is, Gary said to me years ago, um, and, you know, it's such a simple thought, and I never thought of it to put it in my evangelistic roller decks, and that is, what did God save you for? I just listened to a guy on the World Station. You may not want to watch it only because it, it's the epitome of liberal progressivism, but you'll learn a lot. And they had a, um, a basically former theologian who is now a pastor, but is a transgender woman from a man. 
And he basically said this, just recently said, I haven't watched it twice, it was so fascinating, he was so articulate, it was scary. He said, I no longer believe in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And he put the nails in his own coffin. But what does substitution mean? You can't save yourself. Death is still reigning in Israel. Death still reigns within you unless you are saved through the blood of Christ. Why? We see Sinai. This God is a holy God. Moses, don't you dare come closer. And therefore, sin is still resident and grace is still moving forward. First, though, God must ordain the tension, and mine is going to be thematic in this category. It's an old category. God ordains the tension between the city of God and the city of man. Other books have been written. The most famous one, though, is Augustine, right? If you ever read the book, it's a great book, The City of God. Now, it's, con- it's in contrary and will contrast to the city of man. There is a city of man. Mm. You know, um, <clears throat> Luke tells us that in times past, God passed over the nations in Acts chapter 14. He's not passing over Israel. He's passed over all of the nations up to this point and still even in the life of Israel. And people still say it's unfair. This is the city of God and the city of man. God is determined to save a particular people for his own possession. How does God then, and by the way, the Old Testament's a violent book, right? And yet Jesus said, just after John the Baptist was beheaded, the kingdom of God suffers violence and violent men take it by force. You have Satan trying to take the kingdom from God and the kingdom people on this earth trying to preserve the kingdom while God preserves it for them. There is always violence in a world that hates you. That's just, we should be expecting that. We've been loathed into a complacency because of our America blessings that have come upon us, right? But that may very much soon change. It's also um, helpful to understand that the, the violence in the Old Testament highlights how precious the revealed gospel is mm-hmm. in that there is no way for God to, to interact with man mm-hmm. in a non-violent way without the gospel because of the sinfulness. That's right. And the violence comes from sacrifices in order to get closer to God, right? So, how does God remind him his church? It's easy. If you think like a Hebrew, sin, you know, you read it through the prophets, the sin of a nation was the sin of the prophet too, even though the prophet was a righteous man, right? So, in other words, it's collective. But it's hard for the church to think that way. We don't think like Hebrew people. We just don't. We're, well, as the old phrase goes, rugged individualism of Americanism, right? And that has a positive and also a negative slice to it. But how does God remind his church of their place in the generations of men, Old Testament, and the promises that he gave to them? 
How does he remind you and I of that sacrifice, as Justin was saying? We're not Hebrew. Something's got to happen for us to be able to think like a Hebrew in that sense. Mm, a lot of volunteers. Is that you, Cheryl? I said, yes, it's me, I made it. Okay. <laughs> but no answer to the question. <laughs> Absolutely. The reminder comes from different directions. I've already talked about one of them, and that is that we are spiritual seed. Go to Romans chapter 11. We're going to get more into the book itself and the outline and everything else. But, you know, if I heard Pat's directives um, uh, close enough, we want to get an overall sense of the theme of the Bible and the theme of Exodus or the individual books of what it's speaking to us collectively as a church, right? So Romans 11. Now, this is a very common verse. It won't surprise you. But again, verses have more force in them when you are in a certain context of a certain subject area. And we see that in this. All right, verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 11 through 22. I say then, by the way, that the, the um, nine, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, think of it this way collectively. Chapter 9 is God's redeeming <laughs> grace with the elect of God in history past. Chapter 11 is God's redeeming grace according to his electing grace in history present. And chapter, uh, I'm sorry, that was chapter 10. And in chapter 11, it's God's redeeming grace, his electing grace in redemptive future. Okay? So God is always working to save his elect. Starting at verse 11, I say then they did not stumble at so as to fall. That's concerning Israel. Did they? May it never be by their own transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression be the riches of the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I, speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as them, as, all, as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, magnify my ministry. If someone I might move, if somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them, not all of them, some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. And if the first piece of the dough be holy, the lump is all the lump is also, and if the is also, and if the root be holy, the branches are two. But if some of them of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, were and this is where I've got tape on my Bible. <laughs> what does it say? We're what? We're grafted in them. Most important part of the text. That's where God broke you. There you go. And 
and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. That's Israel. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's a paralyzing thought. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell severity, that's Israel, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So we are wild olive branches grafted into the root of Israel's promises. Right? That includes the patriarchs into whom God gave the promises to. We have a spiritual Hebraic affiliation and relationship to the Jewish nation. Yeah. I just wanted to mention also, just for the sake of some that are yep. here visiting for the first time, what what uh, Todd, how Todd is, what Todd is doing, how it fits in so nicely with the three main objectives we have for every book is, you know, the, the whole Bible is about God's rulership of his kingdom. That's what the Spirit That's is right. all about. And so we're looking at that. How is God establishing that? And then secondly, uh, what is man's response to what God's doing? And then thirdly, what is God's response to man? And That's right. This just fits in so well with that. Yeah, and I'm taking, before I get into specifics of Exodus per se, I'm getting into a more of the broad view of God's redemptive work from Genesis, who they were sinners from, from Adam all the way to Moses, and yet God is doing his redemptive work. And so we are unnatural branches grafted in, and there's you know debate about who the root is, but I believe here in the context it's Abraham. Some people may say Christ. But the idea, though, the idea here is, is that, by the way, fear, because as I gave up on Israel for a time, for a season, in order that the blessings of Abraham and the promise I gave to him, by the way, what is the blessing? We see it in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, right? I will make your progeny as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And that's a lot of people. But again, in order for God to fulfill his plan, eventually Israel must be rejected. But beware, Gentile people, that God will eventually end with the Gentiles, uh, with the Jews. But that's a different story right there. So, go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Question. So how do we become like the Jew? How do we become saved like the Jew? So to say, our brother Mo Bergeron is fond of saying, the new heavens and the new earth and the new earth will only be populated with circumcised Jews. That's right. And there's a story behind that, right? They're right, there's a big story, a big theological story behind that, in the sense that we are circumcised of heart and not of flesh. 
And the Jew who was saved was not circumcised in the flesh, even though their sons had to be circumcised on the eighth day. They were saved by faith in the circumcision of the heart. And that's the end of Romans 2, mm-hmm. uh, where he, Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward go. and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And this is why you can look at the book of Exodus through two different lenses. It's historical account, the events that are occurring within the historical account, and therefore getting, you could say, the interpretive blessings that coming that come through knowing exactly what God is doing in relationship to Israel. But the other lens is that we are all in bondage to sin. There is a city of man that would enslave us all. And this is not our home. This is not our world. And therefore, we must flee like the Israelites, even in haste. And therefore, we must go to God and that Sinai. Not to the law, but what Sinai was eventually going to point to. A promised land that would come through the seed. And that is Christ himself. So we'll read here, Genesis 3. Let's read verses 6 through 18, 16 through 18. Galatians. Galatians, I'm sorry. Yes, I said Genesis, didn't I? Galatians 16 through 18. Now again, this is a very difficult text. We're getting one point out of it. Now the promises, plural, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, rather to one and to yours, rather, uh, and, and to your seed, that is Christ. So, basically, all of the patriarchal promises that God gave, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Those were promises that eventually led to the one seed. Verse 17. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later did not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The one point you only need to recognize is this, God gave promises to Abraham, he gave promises to Isaac, he gave promises to Jacob, and by the way, they were all looking towards the promised land even before the promised land became known, even to, say, Abraham, the promised land to Jacob was more illumined in the sense of this territory of the Canaanite region, a land filled with milk and honey that God would eventually give to them as their inheritance of the promise. But the promise that God was truly speaking about was not literal. Because God knows, as Isaiah says, the end from the beginning, and from the beginning the things yet to be done. And ultimately, these promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to be fulfilled in Christ and him alone. That's the ultimate end of God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament. And therefore, we're seeing children who are in bondage, and we see ourselves through that different lens that we're in bondage too, but delivered in Christ and looking for a new promised land that is promised land that is in heaven, not in this earth. All right. Therefore, 
Actually, let's go to Deuteronomy 10, 15. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, and we're going to go to two texts in Deuteronomy. So we're looking at 10, 15, and then we're going to go back to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Look at verse, let's read um, 14 and 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. That's Genesis. That's rule and ownership of what he has created. That's what Pat wants as a focus on these studies. Verse 15. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Circumcise then your heart, and stiffen your neck no more. So God's promises, his affection, are upon a particular people alone. That's why a lot of people have, and I get it, I get it, because our sentiments, our sentimentalities, our affections, uh, our emotions kind of get in the way when we start to conclude and use our logic that God gave us when, you know, someone like me comes up to him and says, well, we're a church. By the way, if you want to be a member, you don't have to believe in this. The elders have to, though. That we believe in a penal substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, and we believe in a limited atonement of Christ. And that automatically, automatically puts people on defensive because they think, all right, well, then God only loves certain numbers of people, right? And that he doesn't love anybody else. Well, first, first we have to understand God's love. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust, right? He does show love every single day to those who hate him. The New Testament even says he is kind to ungrateful men even. And so that's where we see love. But there is a redeeming love that is special. Choosing in him us before the foundation of the world. Now, because people react to it emotionally... What they forget, though, is their Old Testament. Because their Old Testament says what Deuteronomy 10 just said. I chose you alone. I didn't choose the Edomites. I didn't choose the Moabites. I didn't choose any of the Canaanite tribes. I didn't choose any of them. I chose you. In fact, he says, it's not because you were more righteous than them. I chose you because I could display my glory and my goodness. That's his right. A sovereign God will always cause offense within the world. But sometimes it even causes offense within the church. But your Old Testament screams out God's electing grace and his right to choose a small little dinky nation called Israel for his own possession to do his own purposes of grace while they left the world all to itself. Now, if you've got a complaint about that, well, old John DeBrine from he's a, he's a, 
John DeBrian. Remember John DeBrian? Yeah, years ago? He says, he says, if you don't believe me, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, write God. You know, write a letter to God. I don't like what this Bible is telling me right now. But the Old Testament is a great example of limited atonement. God did choose a nation for himself, only that nation. By the grace of God, when the, ta- when the Tent of Tabernacles, uh, or I should say the full permanent tabernacle is finished, you have a court of Gentiles that says, come Gentiles, but very few, very limited few ever came as God fears. Compare in comparison to the Israelites. Now, Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, let's read verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples for you were the fewest of peoples. This little dinky spot of land that, by the way, they don't even own yet. They're in bondage in a different country and God has intended to deliver them because he's heard their cries and he's going to call a prophet called Moses who is like Christ. The humblest man in the world. A friend with God. A lover of God. That's why, in the beauty of this whole picture, we see it reaffirmed in 1 Peter chapter 2, right? That we, the church, are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a people after God's own possession. Quoting, quoting Deuteronomy 7. Peter sees the church as that promised land people. How can he see that? In the New Testament, post-death and resurrection of Christ and ascension of Christ on the throne, he sees it as the finished work of God's redeeming grace, as fulfilling his purposes in the spiritual seed of God that he's saving. And so he's going to save a people right now in Exodus. You could say that actually we have the mark of God upon us. You know, we see in the book of Revelation the mark of the beast, right? Six, six, six. It's the number of a man, quote unquote, right? But we're a number of the children of God who are the mark of God in them. We are sealed by the Spirit of God, those who have received Christ alone in saving faith. It's interesting, we're talking about families here. Ephesians 3, Paul writes to the Ephesians. I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. He knows every tribe. He knows every country. He knows every president, every monarch. He knows every child that is born, every child, or I should say every person that dies. And he knows his elect. Um, let's look at First John. Go to First John. We're going to go to chapter 4. 
So Egypt is the what? The city of man, right? We are the city of God. The interesting thing is, and this has always been, you read theology books and you see different views in relationship to how to view Israel. It's obvious, according to Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, that not all of Israel, well, Romans 9 as well, not all of Israel are of Israel. Hebrews 4 says, and most fell in the wilderness. Why? Because they died in unbelief. Therefore, looking at Israel is really important, redemptively. Because what we have within the church, and I could go off on a really big tangent right now, but I'm just going to make this statement. We can look at the church as Israel, and we can really be messed up really, really bad, really quickly. We could be like the, like Jonathan Edwards' day during the 1700s, where they had a halfway covenant because they didn't know what to do with the children of believers who weren't believers, right? If you believe that the church is like Israel, then you let everybody in to become a member, right? Because Israel is filled with a whole bunch of unbelievers, even though they were saved from the grasp of the Egyptians. So we have to look at Israel as an entity that is different from even the church, where the church is filled with believers who may have a few speckled unbelievers within them, but unbewared or unknown by the leaders of the church. So in 1 John 4, 6, Because the reason why I said that is that we're trying to identify the city of God and the city of man. Simply so, the city of God is the Israelites at this point, but it does include unbelievers. And the city of man is the Egyptians. Many scholars point to basically going from Egypt, being delivered, being immersed through the sea, uh, and then entering into the promised land 40 years later as a redemptive picture. So here, though, John picks up on this, you could say, this understanding in the Christian mind of what we look at, not from Jewish eyes and experience, but from Christian eyes, right? Starting at verse 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. Now, false prophets is the context here. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know that the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There will be many who will not listen to Moses. And they will die in the desert. Same here, how we define the church. When a false prophet comes in, do you follow them? Or do you follow the truth of the scriptures? And hopefully a a brave elder who stands his ground and says, as I was talking to my dear brother uh, Richard, oneness Pentecostalism, modalism is not to be found in the church. Get away from us. Right? So there's a distinction being made here. Will they follow Moses who acts as a mediator between God and men? Many will fall. 
But also, too, we learn about the city of man because the city of man speaks like man. It speaks like the world. And how did the Egyptians speak? They speak through polytheism, not monotheism. God claims and is the one and only true God who created the heavens and the earth. Follow me alone. He even says the idols of the world are dumb. They don't speak, they don't exist, and yet people follow them. They are senseless, like Isaiah 44. They don't know what is in the left hand, they don't know what is in the right hand. When a man makes an idol from a stick of wood, one piece of wood he throws in a fire, the other one he makes a wood piece of wood as an idol, and then he bows down to it. This is spiritual insanity. But this is the world that we live in. Gender ideology, right? Gender identity. It's imbecility. It's insanity. This is how the city of man thinks. They do not speak as of God. They speak as the world. They're worldly. Interesting. Even when we are friends to the world, like Joseph was, you are soon forgotten. Right? Joseph, right? Was in Egypt. <clears throat> ended up befriending Pharaoh, becoming a very, uh, the second most important people, person in the royal court. And Joseph ends up even dying there and saving the children of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Right? And then what happens? Exodus begins, that first chapter. There's a new Pharaoh on the block, and he doesn't remember Joseph, nor also the friendship that they had together with a Pharaoh, his father Ramses. And the fact that it was, he saved Egypt as well. Well, and there's a learning lesson there, isn't it? You and I, we can be friends with the most influential person in politics who may not be a Christian, but is on the same page as you. And then five years from now, you'll just be forgotten. There's a spiritual kinship by being the children of God. And then there's also a spiritual anathema where there is this tension between the city of God and the city of man. We would never be too friendly with them. We can't be. What is it? Help me with the text, brother. The man who's friendship friendly with the world is at enmity with God. James 4, 4, the friendship of this world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. There you go. You always get more with Gary George than you actually... <laughs> but he's right. Friendship with the world is at enmity with God. And so this is the city of God and the city of man. This is the world we live in. Dead and dying sinners in the city of man. You and I live amongst the walking dead. We live amongst the walking dead. In the city of man. And yet, while God has called himself to a people, he's called out a people for his own possession. Israel cannot deliver themselves from their bondage of sin. But God has determined to reveal himself to a man called Moses, and he will set Israel free from this city of man which is now innumerable almost in relationship to the original amount of the sons of Jacob and their families. 
And unlike Noah, it's interesting, they will be delivered from the city of man, Egypt, and yet they still carry their sin with them. That's the beauty about God's redemptive work. He's saving very unlovable people. Even the ones he's put his stamp upon and elected them. You and I were not, we were very much like Israel. You weren't that lovely. You didn't have, I mean, I still, re, I still remember when I first got saved. I said, and I hate it, it, it haunts my dreams now. Because I, I still remember saying, and maybe 50% of the Christians have said this. I literally said to another Christian, and I was stupid as a brick. Okay? And I said to myself, I wonder what God saw in me when he saved me. Quote, unquote. Haunts me to this day. It wasn't pretty. And it's not pretty now in enlightened eyes from the scripture looking backwards. Holy cow, was I wrong, right? Wow. Oh, that's right. I mean, it's true. I mean, you know, I I can tell you without getting too graphic, but I still, I think my biggest struggle in my spiritual life is still the thought life. Oh, sure. Uh, it's because because God cleans up the external, sometimes even really quickly, and he did with me. I wasn't perfect the first two years, but after that two years, the house was cleaned up and swept out pretty good. But that... Stuff that's in that head that you cultivated all that time as an unbeliever, most difficult thing in the world. Paul, oh, yeah. Paul should have said, I buffet my mind, not my body. Yeah, yeah. So Israel cannot deliver themselves. They can't deliver themselves from their bondage of sin. It would take God's power to destroy sin. And Moses would speak of a greater prophet, which is not in the book of Exodus. It's in, I think it's Deuteronomy, right? That there's a prophet greater than me? Deuteronomy 18. 18. There you go. Uh, And Moses would speak of a greater prophet than himself who would deliver us from our sin forever. And that promise was a genuine promise to the children of Israel. But again, the only way it was apprehended was through faith, and faith alone. Therefore, God's promise, or promises, of deliverance from the world, and his deliverance, uh, God's promises of deliverance to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, merge in Genesis. uh, Exodus, I'm sorry. Merge in Exodus. God chose a Hebrew boy who should have died at birth because of the king's edict to kill every male newborn. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Mm -hmm. Moses is found in the river Nile by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in a royal court. He lives there for 40 years until he has a life-changing experience. He protects a slave who's being beaten by an Egyptian. This This part is fascinating. At this point, Luke says, or records for us what... Um, Stephen just about to die in giving his sermon before he's stoned to death says 
it entered his mind to visit his brethren. So at some point, here's Moses in the court, a, a, a figure of royalty. And it enters his mind to visit his brethren. And that's all we have for information. Some might point to it as a conversion experience. An affinity to his brethren rather than to the world. And we're coming up with that. But there is a moment to which God has determined to take, like the Apostle Paul to Moses, to take the scales off his eyes and to drop to the ground so that he might truly see. He must have have become aware that he was a Jew. (laughs) That's right. Well, now, of course, we all remember um, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, right? And we've got this whole fill-in storyline that, you know, the, 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 the slave woman... Uh, saved the cloak that Moses was wrapped in, right? It's plausible, but it's not in the scripture. So we have this almost abrupt moment where Stephen, of course, obviously Stephen's thinking more about his life and glorifying God just before he's stoned, but Luke includes it and says it entered his mind to go back to his brethren. Go to Hebrews 11. Something's going on in Moses and it has everything to do with the city of man and the city of God. Because I'll tell you, if you're a Christian and you want to go back to the world, you won't be happy. There's pleasure for sin for a season. Eventually, you will not be any longer pleased with that pleasure. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives within you. Now, if you leave the church and declare that you're a Christian no longer like that that transgender man who didn't believe in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, then he is totally enjoying his pleasure because he is or never was a believer. He wasn't happy in the city of God, so we left it for the city of man. I would say so. Yeah, I think it's part of Romans 1. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Verses 24 through 29, Hebrews 11. Now this is what's going on in Moses' mind and life. It very well may be literally just before or just after or during it entered his mind to visit his brethren. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to call the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith they, raid, they, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they, were, when they attempted it, were drowned. He became dissatisfied with the city of man. 
Do you get that? And that's what for you and I was our own case or, stat, or status, you could say. We became dissatisfied in the world. How many times we asked the question, there's got to be more than life. I literally asked this question in my own mind. There's got to be more than life than just eating and drinking and being married and chasing women. That was my life. And I searched for the Lord. But the Lord opened my mind in the search. So maybe we could plug this in as being part of Moses' dissatisfaction with the world before he goes to his brethren. Can't say with certainty, of course. The interesting thing that's going on here, and even says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. Interesting, the text does not follow along the storyline of the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Well, which we shouldn't be surprised, right? Moses was 80. Charlton Heston was like a stud. (laughs) 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 But Moses first feared when this event happens and he tries to save the life of a slave. First he fears because they did not receive him as the one who he believed at that period of time that he was being called by God to deliver Israel. And so the people rejected him even before he goes into the desert to Midian. Sometimes we get rejected within the world or most times we get rejected within the world but sometimes you even get rejected in the church. The world will forget about you eventually. Even if your friends like Joseph was with Pharaoh. But sometimes we even get rejected within the church. And that hurts. But Moses still served the Lord. His heart had been changed. And he followed the commandments of God to flee. The church isn't perfect. Israel wasn't perfect. God doesn't save perfect people, right? That's what we have to recognize. We go into every single church. Someone could leave Sovereign Grace Chapel today, go to a different church, and if they hang around long enough, they probably would get disappointed with somebody in that church, maybe even the elders. At the end of the day, we're imperfect people. Can you serve God in truth in that church? Can you love the people of God even though sometimes, every once in a while, they're very unlovely? Moses was disappointed both by his own people and by also the world. And yet he was called by God and he willingly so went forth. And so that's where we are. That's where we're going to stop there for today. He's called to Mount Horeb. We'll talk about that next week. But notice this as a last thought. The thought of Pharaoh's wrath led Moses to flee. But the sight of God when he goes to Sinai causes Moses to worship and serve. So in other words, this compelling, holy God who draws us like a fire to himself um, is not there to push us away, but to draw us closer, even though his holiness doesn't change. So the greater or the the more we get to know God, 
the closer we draw to him. And I will tell you, the more I know God now, 40 some odd years later, uh, God still, and I say this in a very spiritually minded, positive way, God still scares me and I'm still drawn to him. He's that big. He's not like man. And in that fear, I serve him and love him. And perfect fear, perfect love casts out fear. That's right. One one scholar I actually did it in Bible study. Think of it. Awe, wonder, ascribing the holy attributes to God and the knowledge of that. All these things are teaching lessons to us. When I am in awe of God, I know something about God. I've learned something about God. It's not just awe for experiencing. I know something about God and I'm responding appropriately. That's the beauty about knowing God. But I, 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 call, I tell every Christian, I tell my own self, beware, do not trivialize God. He's holy. Do what he says and live. Let's finish in prayer. Father, we thank and praise you. We express our love this day, the, the uh, majesty of God revealed in the miracles, the plagues, your presence on the mountain of Sinai, Oh Lord, we are we are just not worthy, O oh Lord, to see these pictures of your greatness and your and your power and your majesty, and yet still live. So we thank you, O oh Lord. Feed us with these words, O oh Lord, instill them within our hearts that we might remember them and also act upon them. For the glory of your name. Amen. Sorry. I didn't even I, my mind was